Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Talking Smack. I'm your host, Josh Scar. Joining me again this week is Alex. Alex, how you been? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Just excited to get out there and get a little info. Get a little info? Well, you know, share the information with all of our friends who are very kindly leaving five-star reviews. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, we we love we love the reviews. So we'll we'll start off there. Apparently, Spotify now has podcast reviews. So if you're listening on Spotify, you can leave us a like and review and let us know that you don't like what we're doing, but still give us five stars. <laughs> so it's a very, very big week in media and entertainment. A certain movie came out that, you know, people have been excited for. People have been spreading rumors about we've had a few scar wars segments on it spider-man no way home i haven't seen it yet so it's not in my head i'm trying to keep everything out of my head we're not going to talk about it this week because we haven't seen it or at least we haven't seen the movie the internet kind of sucks because spoilers go up within minutes of the movie starting somehow we do want to talk really quick about the fact that apparently this movie is on track to make somewhere between 240 250 million at the box office as as of the time of this recording which is insane considering we're in the middle of a pandemic but it's it's going to be somewhere between the in the top 5 all-time grossing movies it's not going to pass Avengers Endgame but it looks like it will pass Star Wars The Force Awakens and it'll be uh somewhere in line with oh this is the paragraph the list of all-time domestic openings is led by Avengers Endgame, 357 million. Infinity War, 257. Star Wars The Force Awakens, 248. Star Wars The Last Jedi, 220. And Jurassic World, 208. Yeah, Jurassic World actually ended up beating um, the Avengers 2012 for the all time opening weekend box office, which astonishes me considering how bad that movie is. That hit that sweet spot where people just really enjoyed it and it hit that nostalgia factor for people. I don't know what it is. I sure as heck didn't really enjoy it, especially after second and third viewings on home video. So I, I don't know. Yeah, that movie. Too. Oh. I didn't think it was as good as a, an opening weekend record, but who the heck knows? The only part I can really rewatch about that movie is the last fight scene between um, the T-Rex blue and the hybrid of Dawn. The IREX. Brought to you by Verizon. <laughs> <laughs> and people give the Power Rangers movie shit for having a bad product placement. Oh, no, no, no. That scene with her and Krispy Kreme was fantastic because that was hysterical. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, people remember, like, that's the one thing people remember from that movie, even though there is a lot of really good stuff in it. And yet Jurassic World gets a pass because they have Blue and the original T-Rex team up to fight the IREX. Which they don't even win. They don't even win that fight. Yeah, the uh, whatever Kraken came out and ate them. Mosasaurus or something? I don't know. I can't remember. My dinosaur names are well in the back of my database. I, I should remember it because um, my spouse and I are, ha- are watching Camp uh, Cretaceous. And they just had it featured in that. and But I don't remember the name of it. Yeah, I couldn't tell you, but... Again, I somehow Jurassic World ended up on like the top five all time opening weekend list. And I I don't get it. That's how Colin Trevorrow got episode nine. And then 
that fell through too because he's actually not a good director people just didn't realize it because he had the glossy jurassic world jurassic park sheen over him which we've had this discussion before if you want to hear alex and i talk about old jurassic world stuff go back and listen to some of the old episodes which are up on apple podcasts spotify good pods your favorite podcasting networks we should be there what i want to talk about with no way home is just the opening box office is apparently pandemic proof we'll see how the overall numbers fare once we get past this opening weekend but our main topics this week are actually going to be the library of congress added 25 new films to the national film registry which there are a handful of pretty good highlights in there them being the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring a nightmare in elm street return of the jedi richard pryor live in concert selena and wally for me i don't know if there's any other ones that really stand out for you alex the other one would be pink flamingos by john waters john waters the a bit of a shock director but he's probably best known for oh it completely just skipped my head it's that song that goes, oh, oh, damn it. They just remade it like 10 years ago with John Travolta. They remake everything every 10 years now. I know. I know. It's terrible. It's it's the little girl who wants to go to the dance and then Good Morning Baltimore is the main song from it. Hairspray. There we go. Oh, I was going to say she's all that. <laughs> no, no. Hairspray. Holy crap. They, that remake was 15 years ago. <laughs> Time is meaningless. But Pink Flamingos is basically one of his big films. It was about, it was this shock film about trying to find the most filthy person that is in the country. And it's probably best known for um, featuring Divine, who was a, dra- a very popular drag queen of the 60s and 70s. I do not suggest watching that film. <laughs> Watch one of his more um, approachable films like Hairspray or the Hairspray remake. <laughs> but it is interesting that they actually chose something from such a notorious director to consider that culturally relevant. I mean, I saw it once and yeah, I'm more of a fan of Hairspray and maybe Serial Mom. His 1994 film has Kathleen Turner as a mother who wants to be perfect and starts killing off people left and right. Featuring a young Matthew Lillard. <laughs> Interesting. Zoinks. <laughs> That's right, Shaggy. <laughs> I had a a district manager when I used to work for a bank. I called him Shaggy because he he just had this exuberance towards the the bullshit that the bank was pushing. And he just like Zoinks, like, hey guys, we gotta go sell more credit cards, oh, don't you know? It is just it was the weirdest he was the weirdest dude, and I just I couldn't take him seriously because the stuff he was trying to get us to do, like the credit system, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here. Maybe this is a Star Wars. The The credit system is just, it's jacked because you can't get credit unless you have credit, but you can't have credit unless you get credit. It, it just, it makes no sense, but it's just a scam to get you in debt and make banks money. And I just never could get into it when I worked at a bank because we live in an area that is not necessarily destitute, but there are a lot of people that are in debt and they basically rely on credit cards to just get them by on a day-to-day basis. And I couldn't justify being like, hey, I know you already have three credit cards with us that are maxed out. How about you get one more? We'll give you a low rate that's 
2% higher than your last credit card. I, I couldn't do it. I would get in trouble because I wouldn't be making these sales. Even though we're a bank, we're supposed to be opening new accounts, not getting credit cards as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, Shaggy with his whole like customer service philosophy of he, uh, I'm sorry, this is going to be a, a <laughs> semi-long tangent because this story just is so stupid. I can't not share it. So I'm sitting on a call that's for the bad kids that can't sell credit cards or open new accounts. And he's talking about something with customer service where if uh, you're standing in line for a roller coaster and you've timed it while you've waited in line, that roller coaster is five minutes long and you get your turn up in the roller coaster and all of a sudden it's a 90 second ride. Well, what kind of experience is that? That's how we need to treat our customers. We need to be able to talk to each one and connect with them and spend time with them. And I'm just like, dude, shut up. Not every customer needs a five minute conversation. Some people just want to get in, get out, get deposit their money or take out their money. That is it. What the hell are you doing comparing a bank to a roller coaster? <laughs> people do not go to roller coasters for financial <laughs> advice or for financial savings. They, they go to a roller coaster for thrills. What the hell kind of bank do you want to go for thrills? <laughs> Like zoinks, man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Star Wars over. I I can't really relate to any of that, other than when I first tried to get a car, I was told my credit score was zero. I'm like, okay, so is that a good or a bad thing? It's like, well, you don't exist, so we don't know. So, um. I had a co-signer on the car loan and the car got totaled a few months later. And so we, you know, we got the insurance payout, the car was paid off. For some reason, we waited like six months to get another car. So we went to go get a car. And since I was going to be the primary driver, again, I tried to get the car and they're like, oh, we see you have a credit history. I'm like, cool. What is my credit score? Zero. How is my credit score? Zero. I had a car and I paid it off. Like, Unfortunately, you did not have the car long enough. So again, I had to have a cosigner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the credit system is such bullshit. I I don't I don't get it, but I'm not the one that makes the rules. I just have to live by them. So Wait, wait, let's go back one second. Let's go back one second. So, he's equating the bank to being a roller coaster. I really thought that he that it was going to be not talk to them for five minutes, but make you wait five minutes and then give you 90 seconds of, of joy. No, he was trying to be like, he was trying to compare the the teller customer interaction experience to being on a roller coaster, which again is just a shitty uh, equivalency. You, It's not what you, oh, hey, how's it going? How's Hank? Hank's good. Yeah. Yeah. Your daughter's still a bitch. Okay. You're still a bitch. Okay. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's it makes no sense. I mean, I've been in customer service most of my adult life, pretty much since I've worked. I'm pretty jaded when it comes to all this stuff. We are still planning on doing a uh, uh, like customer ser favorite stories and customer service YouTube video where I would like to reach out to animators. I need to see what the cost is going to be and maybe we'll do a Kickstarter. Uh, but we're going to do like an, an animated video and we're going to kind of act out or at least narrate our favorite stories from customer service because most of us are from GameStop and customer service backgrounds. So we've got some stories to tell. 
So is leaving the the roller coaster? <laughs> <laughs> We're done with the roller coaster. You, you have to say Scar Wars over. <laughs> I did say Scar Wars over. Back to the National Film Registry. Please tell us more. So uh, there's over 800 films, or there apparently as of 20, December 14th, 2020, there are 800 films in the National Film Registry, which we all add 25 more. So there's 825. What I wanted to get into, which I find interesting, we'll talk about some of the films that are in there, but I just wanted to touch on this really quick because there is an FAQ page. And one of the questions in there is, how many films by women directors are on the registry? Interesting. They go by saying there are over 70 directed and co-directed by women. So there aren't even 70 films that are singularly directed by women on this list. They're also co-directed. And I have to say there's over 70, which means there's like probably 71, 72, maybe 74. But they would say 75 if there were 75. They have a list of these here. The oldest movie directed by a woman on this list. Uh, shoot, this isn't sortable. Uh, looks like it's from 1913. It's called Suspense by Lois Weber. Uh, I know The Hurt Locker is the newest entry on that list. There's only one movie that's actually on the co-directed subspot, so that's fine. But yeah, there's 74 movies on this list. 73 if you want to be singularly directed by women. Mana Key, Temple Under Siege from 2006 by Joden Lander is the next newest after The Hurt Locker. Uh, we have Hairpiece by Ioka Chenzeria. Chenzeria? Chenzeria? Sorry if I'm butchering these. I, I just find th these lists, especially in the FAQs, like they're just offering this information. Like, hey, look, we acknowledge this. And it, I just find it really odd. Like, I know women and people of color have had a really rough go of it, especially as directors. The uh, National Film Registry also has directed by persons of color. This one's not even numbered. Oh, like they're not even trying to be like, hey, look at how many. It's just it's not even numbered. It's just a, a spreadsheet, which Spike Lee has four of these. And then there's Ang Lee with Brokeback Mountain. He's got four little girls do the right thing. Malcolm X. She's got to have it. Kind of surprised that they are that they didn't number. Huh. I'm not I mean, it, like, why would they put the effort in? It's... I understand that um, it just the push over the last 12 years to actually try to actually be more inclusive and make it made it. Yeah. Make it more available. I'm actually pleasantly. This is really sad, but I'm pleasantly surprised that there's about 8% of all the films have had a female presence behind the camera. Yeah. It, I mean, of, that, in terms that, of directing, that's not saying nothing, but again, the, the fact that, the National Film Registry hasn't recognized more of these movies directed by women is kind of infuriating. Yeah. Um, I will say that on the persons of color list, we've got Luis Valdez, who directed I Am Joaquin, Zoot Suit, and La Bamba. Pretty cool that even La Bamba's on this list. La Bamba is so huge, especially I watched that movie with my mother so much. I I love La Bamba. Like we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about Selena, but like I'm not a person of color. I am as white as the the snow but my family we love richie valens we we love la bamba like my mom my mom and dad grew up in that era of music so when they heard about this biopic about richie valens like that was one of the first non-animated or kid-friendly movies that i ever saw in theaters uh but you'll be happy to know that die hard is on the list <laughs> yay 
looking over the list, I, I have it sorted by release year. The Dark Knight is the most recent superhero movie on this list. Went in last year in 2020. Uh, but I believe I saw Blade. No, uh, nope. I thought I saw Blade on here. I guess not. Blade apparently isn't culture, culturally relevant enough because they kicked off the superhero trend. Mm. Um, but The Matrix is on here. That went in in 2012. Here's one that I don't believe should be in there. Shrek. Wait, what? I don't believe Shrek should be in Wait, here. Wait, no, 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 no. Shrek is in there. Yes, Shrek. Shrek is in here, yes. There's only now two Pixar films, Toy Story and Wally. Yep. When did Shrek get in? Shrek got in last year in 2020. Before Wally. Yes. So I, my guess is Shrek is in because it's culturally relevant because it was the first animated feature to win an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Ew. It took the Academy six years to even create it after Toy Story came out because, uh, I mean, you had Beauty and the Beast, which was the first animated feature to be nominated for an Academy right. Award for Best Picture. I don't think you had that again until Up. Beauty and the Beast kind of started that conversation of animated features are Oscar-worthy features. And then Pixar came up with Toy Story and the conversation kind of renewed. And then the Academy finally buckled and went, okay, fine, we'll have animated features win. Oh, hey, Shrek is all about how shitty Disney is. Let's give them the Academy Award. So I didn't that come out the same year as Monsters, Inc., or was that Finding Nemo? I think it was Finding Nemo. Because what Shrek was 2001, such right around Finding Nemo, I believe. Yeah, I can't remember. I think Monsters, Inc. might have been 2000. Oh, Finding Nemo was 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, you're right. It's the same year as Monsters, Inc., 2001. Oh, hell no. They should have given it to Monsters, Inc. I still want my Boo sequel. There were only three nominees in 2001. There was Shrek, Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, and Monsters, Inc. How the hell Monsters, Inc. did not win Best Animated Feature for the very first animated feature i will never know i mean yes shrek is fun but one it's dated as hell and two it doesn't have the staying power that like monsters inc has had no it i never liked shrek the second one is slightly better but the first one is basically just we hate disney and if i remember correctly it was like katzenberger's second or third uh, animated film after leaving Disney. Cause I know that what they did ants, I believe that sounds right. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that was around the time where I was too cool to be interested in animated features. If, if memory serves me correctly. So somebody on the internet is screaming that I'm wrong. Katzenberg left Disney after overseeing basically the, the new golden age of the late eighties, early nineties. And he immediately went and did ants, which was a ripoff of, um, of a bug's life. And then I don't remember when Shrek came out, but basically Shrek was kind of like his his mockery of everything that Disney stood for, because now he's cool and he has his own company and he can do his own thing and he can be subversive. But Shrek never hit, resonated with me, never hit for me. I mean, the jokes were kind of funny, but every movie was deteriorating returns. Well, I mean, you got Smash Mouth. Come on. How how do you how are you not as timeless and culturally relevant as Smash Mouth's all star? <laughs> <laughs> then they got the little bit of then they got just a little bit more of a 15 minutes out with their lovely rendition of a monkey song. They put in Shrek. It took 20 years for the Silence of the Lambs to get on the list. So I don't really know exactly what the through line of this conversation is, 
Uh, it took 15 years for Jurassic Park to apparently become culturally relevant or designated by the Library of Congress to be culturally relevant. I did want to touch on this really quick because I do, I think 1994 may have been like the best year for one, the Academy Awards and two for just like staying power in movies. These are some of the movies from 1994 that have been inducted. They were not all inducted in the same year, but uh, you've got The Shawshank Redemption, The Red Book, Pulp Fiction, Hoop Dreams, Forrest Gump, The Lion King, Clerks, and The Devil Never Sleeps, all from 1994. Huh. That was a darn good year. Yeah, it was. I mean, looking back at it now with hindsight, Shawshank probably should have won the best picture over Forrest Gump. But again, at the time, you really couldn't you couldn't say Forrest Gump wasn't the biggest movie of the year. But Shawshank just has that staying power. It's it's a timeless movie where I think Forrest Gump has become a bit more dated. Yeah, Forrest Gump's kind of hokey thing is pretty dated and you know the special effects were cool at the time and it was just the right it was just the right year for um hanks and howard to do that film and make themselves oh that was that was zemeckis oh shit you're right it wasn't ron howard that was apollo 13 yes it was robert zemeckis Which, you're right apollo 13 surprisingly not on the list really yeah huh. you got the big lebowski huh. saving private ryan apollo 13 not on the list you should write a, an essay and get that nominated. <laughs> I'll just send, I'll just start mailing them um, the film poster. <laughs> just every day. <laughs> this is my happens. essay. You don't need any more than the poster. Exactly. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> We're not in the film registry. <laughs> Gary Sinise is a national treasure. Put him in the national film registry. Kevin Bacon was there. <laughs> <laughs> So it looks like they have about a they have a, a a minimum time frame of about 10 to 12 years. It seems to be their their guideline for is this culturally relevant or is this just a flash in the pan? That seems pretty accurate because you've got the Dark Knight, which took 12 years. You've got Brokeback Mountain, which took 13. This is I mean, th- we're going to transition here because this is our main topic. We'll move on here really quickly. I know you want to talk about Selena really quickly, too. But Fellowship of the Ring took 20 years, which, among other things, I'm surprised they didn't just put all three Lord of the Rings movies in at the same time. You can't really discuss one's cultural relevance without going into the entire trilogy. Yeah, that's a little weird. But then again, they just put in Return of the Jedi this year, too. So but the Lord of the Rings, to me, is not necessarily a individual films like was like what happened with the Star Wars trilogy. It was filmed mostly all at once. It was back-to-back years, and it had the capstone of winning, what, 12, 11 or 12 Oscars? 11. That was like, hey, listen, we understand what you did. This is fantastic. Here's all your Oscars. Um, So, sorry, I'm going to I'm gonna sidetrack just really quick. Hold on to that thought. Speaking of Return of the Jedi, we, we would be remiss if we didn't discuss that a little bit. So, Star Wars, original Star Wars, A New Hope, went in in 1989, 12 years after its release in 1977. And Empire went in in 2010. So that was actually a pretty long wait for them. Wow. That was 30, 30 years? 90? No, it was 20, 21. No, 40, 40 years. Oh, thir- oh no, since release. 2010. So 1990, 2000, 2010. So 30 years to get in with Empire, which you would argue Empire might have more cultural significance than Star Wars with hindsight. At the time, obviously, Star Wars was the biggest thing ever. 
one one question that I do have about the National Film Registry and all this is which version of these films goes in? Because you have Star Wars, A New Hope going in in 1989. At that time, only one version of that film existed. So that is like the original Star Wars going into the National Film Registry and being preserved. And yet we've had three or four special edition remakes with additional footage and whatever being put in there as well. So this I actually do know the answer to. So the National Film Registry was created in a response to Turner Classic Media updating old movies and making them from black and white to color. And it was kind of a response from a bunch of filmmakers going like, you shouldn't be doing this. We need to see the original films. You're tampering with history. So when a film gets put into the registry, it's it's supposed to be an honor. And the studio director, etc., are supposed to hand over an original print of the film as it was released in theaters. George Lucas has never done that. So the Star Wars trilogy, they don't actually have an approved copy. Um, I had to look into it and... What they finally did, because they said, George, we, we'd like this. And he's like, well, I'm tampering with it. It's mine. Which is funny, because he was actually one of the people that was actually petitioning for the to no longer colorize film, uh, black and white films. So what they did to get around him was they actually went to a movie theater that still had an original print from the release. And they actually have the 35 millimeter print from the screenings. And so that is what they've taken and have in their vaults and they have preserved. Huh. That's kind of crazy. You said that was Empire? Uh, that was the first movie. Okay, well, I mean, in that one, they hadn't even done a special edition yet, so I don't. I find it weird that... So this is, this is the caveat about that. When Star Wars was released originally in theaters, the title's crawl said Star Wars. It was only on re-releases that it said Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. He would not give them an original Star Wars print. Got it. They had to go find that. They had to go find that. So that's that started the fight with him. Is that he's like, listen, we don't want this touched up. Like, you know, you, 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 I mean, you did some massaging. We don't want that. We want the originals. And he said, no. So they actually had to go find it. And then by the time they got an empire and the return of the Jedi, I mean, like you said, those don't exist anymore. So they had to go and find original prints. All right. So I know there are two movies that you really wanted to touch on. One being a nightmare in Elm street with it being the second slasher movie. I think you said. Yeah, so there are horror movies in there. There's like Silence of the Lambs and others like that. But this is the only technical, if you want to get into the sub-horror genre, of uh, the horror genre subculture. This is the technically the second slasher one. The original one was Halloween, Chris Carpenter, and the fantasticness that is that, that they're still milking that franchise with, uh, was it Halloween Kills, I think, came out this year, that I watched once and went, what the hell was this? It's following the Halloween formula. <laughs> <laughs> it is. And Nightmare on Elm Street, just the classic that is that film. I've actually rewatched all the Halloween films. Uh, I mean, not sorry, the Nightmare on Elm Street films because HBO Max has it as a collection. So I made my way through that in October. I don't know who was in charge of that franchise, but every single one of those films was just oddball. And someone knew going like, let's just throw this at the wall and see what sticks for Freddy. <laughs> but the original one is it's about a tight 95 minutes. And Freddy is mostly silent. They really don't explain what happened other than he killed a child at one point. It touches on some weird things like alcoholism and regret of fam uh, family regret of did they kill an innocent man? That her parents are haunted. That they 
don't believe her when she's like, listen, this person is real and he's killing us in our dreams. And she pulls out his hat at one point that even the parents are like, well, you might have found that in the boiler room. It is such a tightly scripted movie that is very nuanced. And what he was trying to tell like of a broken nuclear family wondering, did they do the wrong thing? And now they've now their children are paying for this. And so, yeah, it's pretty awesome that they got that they recognized it. I don't think we'll be getting the Dream Warriors anytime soon in the film <laughs> registry. But that original one is, it's just so Yeah, good. you have that iconic moment of Johnny Depp getting sucked into the bed and blood spewing mm-hmm. up into the ceiling. Yeah, if you uh, if you want a good time for behind the scenes thing, uh, Netflix's, um, the movies that made us, they just did uh, Nightmare on Elm Street uh, for this season. So yeah, uh, moving on. Sorry. Um, so Selena, real quick. Yeah, so I was actually surprised to see Selena. Um, growing up in a his, uh, Hispanic household, um, especially growing up in Corpus Christi, Texas, the movies that really my mom made me watch a lot was uh, La Bamba, which is just a great movie. And But then also my family, uh, La Familia, we watched a lot. And the same director, he ended up doing Selena, which, grow, which in Texas was really funny because... At that time, when it was kind of coming out, people were like not pleased that Jennifer Lopez was cast, at least around Corpus, and also really worried about how the film would be treating um, Selena. And then it came out, and my mom took its opening weekend. It was surprising and stunning and fantastic, and it spoke a lot to me as a child because um, my mom didn't teach us Spanish because she was like, "Listen, we're in, you know, we're in Texas." We're in the U.S. I'm not going to teach you Spanish. And so having those moments where Selena actually, she can sing in Spanish, but she actually doesn't know how to speak it. <laughs> it's fantastic. And the way they told the love story with, you know, reverence, and they did get the family's approval and stuff like that. But it was shortly thereafter, which thereafter that they actually have the Selena statue on, on the waterfront that they put up. And so it was just, it was an important movie to me as a child. Um, especially growing from coming from a household that was from that era. And I'm really glad that they picked it up because I think that her story is still important, especially to the Hispanic community, but it's also, it's just an important, an important story for Texas as well. Especially if you're from, you know, if you're from a mixed background, like I am. Yeah, I can definitely understand that. And, and again, it, representation matters as well. These stories, just because they're of people of color, doesn't make them any less significant either. Because while the the background of the person may be a bit more culture, culturally significant to the people from the Latinx community, their story can still be inspiring to anyone. I, I, I mean, like I said, I'm white as the snow. My, my wife and I were both Caucasian. And we've got three beautiful children and our oldest. She loves Raya. She Raya and the Last Dragon is like her favorite movie from the last year. And she hasn't really shown an interest in the Southeast Pacific traditions or anything like that. But she's really picking up on it, especially with other movies that we've watched recently, like Over the Moon. She's kind of picking up on similarities in like dragon designs and other things like that. Uh, we've watched Mulan. She's recognizing those sort of things. Uh, so again, and that, like not to be appropriating the stuff, like we're, we're just trying to get her exposed to it and let her know that these different cultures exist and they have all these amazing different things, you know, look at and diversify yourself and look at these cultures and just kind of appreciate what these cultures bring to the world. 
yeah, it's, it's a very cool thing. And I, I hope that more than 8% of these movies uh, that are directed by women become more becomes a larger number and more persons of color get recognized as well. I'm honestly kind of shocked that Creed isn't on here yet. Uh, That came out, I think 2010, 2015. Okay. So we haven't quite hit that 10 to 12 year mark, but if, if we get beyond 12 years and Creed's not on there, I will literally make a campaign to, to get people to submit for that because come 2025 Creed needs to be in that conversation of, movies that need to be preserved because Creed is fantastic. That is such a good movie. And if you don't know who he is, uh, look up Matt Draper on YouTube. He has an amazing video essay on Creed and it, it's, it's just phenomenal. Like Creed made me cry. This guy's essay about Creed made me cry because of what it brought up about what Creed is and how it is. So definitely look that up and keep an eye out in 2025 because we're going to go campaigning for Creed to be in the national film registry. I'd do that. Maybe we should just do that too. Just to send the posters. <laughs> Once we get Apollo 13 in, we immediately switch to sending them Creed posters. <laughs> the main, one of the other reasons we're here this week is we wanted to talk about the 20th anniversary of the Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring with it being entered into the national film registry. What better time to talk about it besides obviously the 20th anniversary. I remember I heard nothing about this movie because in 2001 I was trying, I didn't know who I was. I was 16 at the time and I just, I didn't know who I was. I was still, still trying to figure out who, who is Josh and what do I like and what do I not like? I remember I was talking to my cousin online and he went and saw Lord of the Rings and I was like, Oh, what's that? He explained a little bit to me, went to my dad and had said, Hey, cousin went and saw this you want to go to the movies later? And he, my dad was always down for movies and my dad grew up in that Tolkien era as well. He, he just loved fiction books as a kid. So he, he heard Lord of the Rings and said, do you want to go see the movie? And he went, yes. <laughs> so we didn't know what we were getting into with a three plus hour movie, but I remember walking out of that and being just like, I need to know more about this. And so like I used my dad as an, an encyclopedia about this. And I went to the bookstore a little bit later and I bought, all the books and uh, found out about like the Silmarillion and the Hobbit and all these other things. So you're better than me then, because I remember hearing about the Lord of the Rings before um, when they were filming it. And I asked one of my friends about like, what is this? Cause he was excited. And he then proceeded to sit me down <laughs> and tell me the, basically want to take a minute, book. just sit right there. <laughs> yeah. For an hour and a half. And when he was done, I kid you not, because this is at church. We were talking, we were the youth, like we were at the youth room at church, because um, we always had access to like the youth room like during the weekends, because they would meet, we would meet up, and basically it'd be available to us. Cause there's a basketball hoop and a little hangout area and stuff. So while everybody else is like playing basketball and other stuff, he's telling me this Lord of the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and then he gets to like the end, and I'm like, and he's like, but it's not over, and then he proceeds to tell me the 30 endings the book has. <laughs> And then I kid you not, from the same side bag that he has his Bible in, he then pulls out the Lord of the Rings and hands it to me. Oh, jeez. I take it home. I attempt to read it. And I give it back to him. And I'm like, I don't know what this is, but I'm giving you this back. Then it's like a year later. And I see like the posters for it come up. And I'm like, okay, let me try this again. I get the book from the library. 
I try to read it and I hand and I give it back because I'm like, I get to one of the 55 pages of of Elvin singing without subtitles. <laughs> I mean, well, translations. It's a book, and I give it back. Yeah, they are slog. They are investments of time. They are investments of every ounce of your ability to pay attention because uh, Tolkien was very much interested in building a world as well as telling a story with these books. Then the trailer comes out the summer. There's a trailer. I remember that trailer so vividly. I'm sitting, I don't remember what movie I saw, but I remember the trailer and it's just the music and it's that like the mountaintop and it's the music is playing and you see the fellowship walk by one by one. Like they come cresting over the little hill and they walk by the camera and it's like the Lord of the Rings and it's like the release date. And I'm like, oh, gosh, dang it. Go back to the library. I get the book <laughs> and I finish it. And then I go, dear God, do I have to actually watch this thing? <laughs> but opening night, midnight showing, I'm there with my geeky friend and my, uh, my other friend. And we watch that thing. And I'm like, the book makes sense. Finally. <laughs> Finally, the book makes sense. And I know there's differences, and I know that some things don't make sense. You know, they, they condense some stuff, they move some stuff. My friend left there going, They didn't put in Tom Bombadil. What the heck? I'm like, Oh, yeah, that really weird part where that guy briefly wears it, and his wife is kind of weird, and he's super weird. And then I'm like, Is Frodo hitting on the wife? <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, I'm glad they cut that. <laughs> yeah, there's no time for Tom Bombadil. No, those three movies went every night, opening night to watch. And it really was an experience of seeing something like I, I know there's Lord of the Rings fans who are way bigger friends than I am. And I know there are people who can quote the Cimmerian and the Stephen Colbert 20th anniversary skit that he did with the Hobbits and Elrond that he did for his show is on YouTube and everyone should go watch that. We linked it on our Talking Smack page. The movies are important. They're important for book lovers. They're important pieces of cinema. They show what true creative vision with minimal direct uh, with minimal studio oversight can be. And I understand there's some detractors like the Tolkien estate who does not like the movies at all. And there's some of my friends who are like, well, they didn't really do it justice. One of my favorite things that came out of it was uh, Ben Wyatt in Parks and Recreation, where Tom is talking to him and he's just like, go watch Lord of the Rings or something. Yeah, nerd. And then he goes, actually, I was not impressed with uh, Peter Jackson's interpretation of Tolkien's vision. And he's just like, get out of here. <laughs> I, I, I do understand that there are things that resonate with people and they didn't translate everything because obviously, how can you to make it a digestible movie? I, I think they did make the best version of that movie that they could at that time. But I also don't know anymore if you could make that movie now because everything is made via algorithm. It's just what, what resonates with people? What do people like? Like the Harry Potter movies, those devolve so quickly into fan service. Like the first movie is really enjoyable. It's, it's good. Second movie starts kind of turning into that dark, getting in more into like a dark territory with the story third movie is like a weird mishmash of the first two and then the fourth movie is just complete fan service like there's that one moment where alan rickman is like shoving ron and uh, harry's heads to look at their books during study hall he's even like abusing them hitting them 
and it's it's hilarious because snape hates them and whatever and then there's that one shot where he's like rolling up his sleeves like really gonna get them this time and then just slightly shoves their heads and like that sort of stuff just irks me to no end and i feel like the lord of the rings did a really great job of avoiding a lot of that the only moment kind of like that that really stands out to me is in return of the king where legolas flintstones downs down the oliphant's trunk and just kind of like lands in front of gimli and was like that only counts as one like I, I was actually laughing in the theaters in that moment because like that is so fucking stupid vigo mortensen basically said that he believes the first movie is the best the second one gets a little way and the third was too much cgi for him i i agree with that 100 like i was literally about to to talk about that i i might be in the minority because i know a lot of people really love the two towers but for for me it, it the the ranking system goes fellowship two towers return of the king I'm one of the ones who's two towers because I think that one is the best when it comes to the story is picking up and now it's about turning the screws. It's about the, 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 the group is separated. How are their separate goals? How, how are their separate journeys going to come back to a same goal? And you really don't get that resolution to the last movie. I just feel like everybody settled in. And the Helm's Deep fight, of course, is just fantastic. I think in terms of extended editions that the first one is probably the best of the three. The third one where they you have to watch the kind of sketchy CGI ghost battle is pretty weird. Especially with the whole Under the Mountain sequence that they added for the extended edition that wasn't in the, uh, the original release. If I was going to go theatrical, I would be 231. But if you're going to go extended edition, which everybody should be watching the extended edition, it is probably one, two, three. And the music is just beautiful. Oh, yeah. Howard Shore's score is just phenomenal. That's probably the best part of the Hobbit trilogy as well. I mean, he recycles some themes, but you can't really deny his composition and arrangements for the songs and the the music and everything that the way he he created the the theme out of the Misty Mountains just ugh beautiful stuff the movies suck but the the score definitely deserves to be recognized at least yeah once um uh, once upon a time i was watching the hobbit trilogy and i kept finding myself getting briefly lost in it like actually enjoying it and it was solely because of the score <laughs> the probably the best scene i think of that entire of that trilogy is because of the score it's when the dwarfs stop what they're doing in Bilbo's place and start singing the Misty Mountains. Yes. That entire first 20 to 30 minutes of that movie, once you get out of the the prologue from the fellowship tie-in, that first 20 to 30 minutes is fantastic. It's, I will defend that portion of the movie of that trilogy. Like I'll defend the first 15, 20 minutes of the Phantom Menace. It, it, that made me hopeful for what was coming, that it was serious, that it was, that it was what and, that was, and the hobbit is a is a children's book and he originally wrote it for that but at least it was going to be like hey we're keeping the world somewhat serious but we're going to tell a different story instead it just got really really weird and the and the re-release of that one is rated r for some reason um was it the battle of the five armors or whatever the re-release is rated r uh for the That's last one yeah because he added in so much battle that they actually had to be like, listen, we can't have an hour and a half of fighting and not la- label this R. So yeah, uh, the I mean, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, though, especially again, Fellowship, for me at least, I do enjoy Fellowship more. 
because um, I do enjoy getting to know these characters and you, it is hopeful in the beginning. I think for me, the biggest thing that is missed and as far as like context from the book is the time gap between when Gandalf leaves from Bilbo's party to when he returns. Cause that's supposed to be a few years, but the movie Isn't kind it of like 10 it's, it's pretty long time. Uh, 10 sounds right, but in the movie, it makes it seem like it's maybe a few days, a few weeks, but it's been years and the movie just kind of seems to forget that or just deems it un- unimportant. It's really hard for me to be nitpicky about the series just because it means just so much to me in terms of my cinematic viewing and understanding. I was actually slightly surprised. It wasn't It wasn't until the Colbert thing that I realized, wait, it's been 20 years since that too? Because, of course, you know, they, they came out 10 years ago. <laughs> Time is meaningless because I could have swore these movies came out maybe 10 years ago at the latest. Yeah, like the Hobbit trilogy was like six, seven years ago. The Lord of the Rings trilogy was like, 12 11 10 <laughs> I'm, I'm actually slightly surprised that peter jackson hasn't done some like another re-release or something because there's been this threat like on like the one ring website and other stuff that he's actually working on like a final remastering of all the deleted scenes that he still has because someone made an offhand comment once that you know you have the the Blu-rays, which is what I primarily rewatch them on, which has all the sub-appendices with all the behind-the-scenes stuff and all the deleted scenes that didn't even make it into the um, extended edition. Someone, either he or maybe it was his screenwriters, made an offhand comment that there's still about an hour, hour and a half of stuff that they never even touched up to put on as extras that Jackson has been tinkering with. I believe it when I see it. That's the sort of thing that just sounds like maybe kind of like the Snyder cut of the Justice League. Yeah. Obviously, they had enough footage and they were given money to go reshoot some things. I don't know. I feel like 20 years later, it just it, it doesn't make sense to release that unless they're going to plan on something for the 30th. I don't know. Yeah, the extended extended edition cut. <laughs> Got to keep it relevant. Each movie's. Each movie's not four year, four hours long. Well, I I think uh, Return of the King extended is like getting close to that. It's like three forty seven, three forty nine. Yeah, it's 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 long. I rewatch them basically once a year, and Same. that one is always a little bit a little bit of a slog. And as much as a slog as a movie, I love can be. The extended Return of the King is four hours and twenty three minutes. Holy crap, is it? Yeah, the extended fellowship is 348 and extended two towers is 355. And that's including credits and stuff too. So, I mean, those credits go for a while okay. too. So, I was like I I swore like there was it was like 330 330 and maybe like 345. Yeah, I I, I was in the same boat. I I don't know, but I I still remember I collected the extended cuts when they first came out. I really hated how they did that where you could get the regular theatrical edition four to six months after the movie came out. And then the extended cut would release one year later. Yeah. The the formula would repeat. And then I remember when return of the King finally was about to hit for the extended release, they released a full box set with uh, a nice little cover of it as well. Hence the box set. And you can just put all three extended cuts in there. 
And I was pissed because I'd been collecting them individually, annually. And then when I open up my Return of the King individual box, there's a, hey, pay us $5 in shipping and we'll send you this box. I'm like, awesome. I will pay $5 for this box. <laughs> That's how they get you, $5 yep. for the box. I mean, 20 years. I mean, holy cow. I remember seeing all these movies with my dad. I just remember that being such a cultural impact. Like you couldn't go anywhere without seeing like, oh, you can get your own chain with the ring and look at all the posters and the girls are obsessed with Legolas. It it is culturally significant, which is why it's now in the National Film Registry. And I think kind of what you were alluding to a little while ago with the diminishing returns from what Viggo Mortensen was saying, where you have a lot of these practical effects that are blended in uh, into the shots and everything where they, uh, I think the term that they used was bigotures where they built. Yep, yeah. Bigotures. Basically it was like uh, the old Godzilla and power ranger stuff where you have like these mini cities that they build so that bigger people can walk by. But what they did was kind of more akin to star Wars where they built sections of the death star and star destroyers and they would film along them. And then they would superimpose the, the actors and the, the actual shots into the film and it just it pays off beautifully and that's where the hobbit films really struggle is they just rely too much on cgi it's literally going from watching the original trilogy of star wars to the prequel trilogy which i mean ironically the hobbit is a prequel trilogy as well the over-reliance on computer generated everything just really impacts the feel of the movie like i don't know how much better the hobbit trilogy would have been if they had gone more practical with their their creature designs and everything, but I don't think it would have hurt them as badly as just going full CGI. I think they were hurt by the stretch from two to three films. That's that that did too. It. But if you watch the behind the scenes stuff, maybe this is me with my rose colored glasses. But if you watch the behind the scenes stuff of the Lord of the Rings, everyone just seems so ecstatic to be there and what they're doing. And if you watch the Hobbit, it almost seems like everyone's perpetually tired. <laughs> and i wonder if that's part of it is that they were just like listen we have to do this now we have to stretch we have to figure out what we're filming today and tomorrow everything's being approved last minute i don't know um i'm just happy i'm happy uh, that i was reminded that it's been 20 years and i'm kind of surprised that there's not being more done about it like i think um because harry potter right now has a movie has a, I mean, has a TV series on uh, Cartoon Network, Hogwarts Tournament of Houses, has an HBO Max reunion special with the cast and some of the crew, and then they're also pimping the newest Crimes of Grindelwald or whatever the heck the next one is, The Secrets of Albus Dumbledore, whatever that Fantastic Beast movie is. Not even like a re-release, not even like a like a cast re like a cast reunion Zoom kind of thing. I don't see why they would really need to, considering every time they go anywhere, they they are almost always all together, unless it's like a press tour for a movie that Viggo Mortensen's doing. It's almost Christmas time. It's time for all of us, including you listeners, to do your yearly rewatch of the extended edition of Lord of the Rings. Devote twelve hours of your day. Because it has to be done in one day. That's the only way to do it. You can't spread it out over three days. That's not acceptable. I actually rewatch the extended quote unquote rewatch. Um, I use I use them as background noise because again the score is so fantastic that uh, I just I like the audio. I, I just I, I love hearing the world if not watching it, and I'll usually use it as background noise when I'm working from home, and it, it just it's it's a comfort food kind of thing as well. So just kind of 
wanting to celebrate and acknowledge this 20 year anniversary because it seems like it's getting a little bit lost in the mix because of Spider-Man No Way Home and everything that is getting announced right now. Like Marvel's just announcing everything. We've got The Witcher coming soon. You've got Boba Fett's Book of Philanthropy coming out, all these different things. You got Aggregetsu came back for its fourth season. The Grand Tour just released their special. There's so much to watch and so much content. And we appreciate that you take the time to look at our content. Look at our content. We're we're an audio medium. So. Exactly. Yeah, thank you for looking at our content. <laughs> so uh, that, that pretty much wraps it up. I did want to get to a few reviews. We do have a few extra reviews this week. Uh, so we've got a few reviews from our video game cult classics from last week where uh dan from casting views again comments another great episode as a huge assassin's creed fan i also think that three suffered from following a trilogy of cracking games with Ezio. the series definitely benefited from the breaks it in releases uh it's had in recent years which i that's something i forgot to mention last week as well was once they moved into an annual release program or format for assassin's creed you really started seeing diminishing returns after Assassin's Creed 4 because that was the last one they really put a lot of effort into and then it just started churning them out year after year and it was really difficult. Uh, another review, this, these, both of these are from uh, the Good Pods app uh, from Definitely Haunted, which we love you ladies. Keep up the good work. Thank you for being in tune with modern trans people and for respecting them. Love you, which we love you too. And from odph607 on itunes fun podcast that covers pretty much all my fandoms make a point to check this podcast out and hit subscribe we appreciate very much as well so please like comment subscribe review those those reviews help us because among other things again we can fine tune what you think works for us and work out what you don't think's for what you don't think works for us uh you don't like the scar wars segment i'll scrap it you like it (laughs) We'll bring it back every episode. I don't know. It's it's really just a, a two-way street where you tell us what you like to hear and we will work our best to make it fit into what we want to produce as well. Otherwise, without that, we can't really fine-tune and we can't grow, which we want to grow because if we can make this something that we can supplement some income and devote more time to, guess what? It's going to get better because obviously we're doing more stuff and we're devoting more time to it funny how things like that work so alex thank you so much for being on again you're welcome you still do not have social media which you have a soundbite for me on that now at this point so i can just implement that (laughs) exactly i am at josh underscore scar you can follow the podcast at talking smack pod on twitter you can email us at tsmackpod at gmail.com you again like you can find us on spotify itunes good pods anchor I think Pod Chaser is a thing now where you can leave reviews or follow us. Spotify now has reviews, so please review on iTunes, Good Pods, Spotify, whatever you're listening to. And we really appreciate it. And Alex, let us know who is leaving the theme song for this week. It's very appropriate. I splashed out a lot of money, but we have our theme song is remixed by the Howard Shores score to Golem's song. I was hoping it was going to be Enya. <laughs> Can't afford Enya. Everyone loves Enya, right? <laughs> Can't afford Enya. I guess I'll I guess I'll settle for Howard Shore. Exactly. <laughs> Bye. Everyone take care. <laughs>